Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Friday, the 4th of March. Well, the team is in the Drakensberg this week for the Biz News Conference, or BNC3. This is the Friday edition, of course, so that means no market report, no news headlines, just pure audio pleasure courtesy of a bouquet of the most downloaded interviews from the week. Let's get into it. Hello, I'm Michael Apple. In this explainer, I'd like to break down the findings of a very important report that was recently released looking into the violent, destructive and deadly riots that engulfed KwaZulu-Natal and parts of Gauteng in July last year. Timing is, of course, everything. Former President Jacob Zuma had just handed himself over to authorities to start serving a 15-month prison sentence for contempt of court when all hell broke loose in our country, wiping out 50 billion from our economy and killing over 350 people. This report focuses on the KwaZulu-Natal riots primarily, where roughly 80% of the looting and destruction was focused. Hearings by the South African Human Rights Commission's expert panel dealing with Gauteng are currently underway, but the KwaZulu-Natal report is likely to be the more significant of the two. I'm going to try to answer a few simple questions I'm sure we all have. What sparked the violence? Was it truly a spontaneous outpouring of rage caused by the incarceration of Zuma? Were the scenes of anarchy and destruction witnessed on our streets the culmination of infighting between different camps in the ANC? Were any rogue characters or units within the shadowy world of state security or crime intelligence loyal to the former president actively fueling the mayhem? Where on earth were the police or intelligence structures of the state? Could this have been avoided? In other words, were there warnings? Has our government learned anything out of one of the most sordid periods in our democratic history? Can or might it happen again? Now, I thought I would have to answer these questions for you in a chronological order, but no, on the third page of the report, there's this, quote, The looting, destruction and violence have come and gone, but we found that little has changed in the conditions that led to the unrest, leaving the public worried that there might be similar eruptions of large-scale unrest in future. The question, many argue, is not if and whether more unrest and violence will occur, but when it will occur." So, that one's out the way. Off the bat, just so you're all aware, this expert panel that produced this report didn't have any powers of subpoena, so it couldn't summon anyone and it couldn't seize or demand any documentation. It relied on the goodwill and cooperation of those approached for information. So don't get this confused with a commission of inquiry, which has significantly greater powers of compulsion. So testimony before the expert panel wasn't in many cases backed up by documentary evidence. A lot of it was deemed classified and so never came before the panel. This expert panel took a look at the context in which this all unfolded, and these are important points. Think of these as the ingredients for chaos it identified. Weak state institutions hollowed out by almost a decade of state capture and repurposing for individual and party political gain. High unemployment, in fact the highest youth unemployment in the world, about 75%. Mass poverty and the highest level of inequality in the world. Rampant corruption in government. And anger fermenting in the population amidst growing frustration at COVID-19 restrictions. The report says all of these factors are themselves a recipe for constant instability in any country. The National Intelligence Coordination Committee, quite an unfortunate acronym, NECOC, warned government prior to 2021 that it needs to address the above-mentioned issues. But, 
quote, It appeared not many members of the executive appreciated the meaning of the warnings raised in these reports and largely ignored them. The need to stop corruption in government and start addressing the needs of the people kept being kicked down the road like a proverbial can, close quote. Interestingly, the panel found that the back and forth, the tit-for-tat battles between Zuma and the state capture inquiry over about an eight-month period was a major factor in the build-up to the violence and looting. Quote, The incarceration of the former president at a correctional facility in escort was the spark that ignited the orgy of violence. Close quote. The day after Zuma is jailed, the 9th of July, a number of trucks are torched on the N3 highway. That's the arterial lifeblood linking KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng. Attacks on shopping centers then followed. The report finds that there were elements of organization behind the looting, combined with normal opportunistic looting. Now, this is important. The planners wanted authorities to think it was spontaneous. The panel even coined a new phrase, organized spontaneity. The panel says that state security or crime intelligence made no intelligence products available to it. Intelligence products are just reports produced for a client, in this case the state. So state machinery wasn't playing open cards with the panel here. It says, quote, What we can conclude is that the National Security Council as a structure does not seem to have received any clear direct intelligence about the impending violence prior to it happening, close quote. I just want to stop here for a second and refer to an extract from a book called Eight Days in July. It was written by journalists in the wake of the July riots and is based on leaked documents, intelligence briefs and reports from across the state security cluster. So documents the panel has never seen. In the conclusion of that book, it notes, quote, Our investigation pointed to an intelligence alert on 11 May, two months before it kicked off, of the upheaval that was to come, close quote. But the authors also ask whether such a vague warning was enough to avert the crisis that unfolded. Evidently, the warning, arguably thin on detail, was ignored. As for the actions of the police, once it had all kicked off, the panel finds there is no doubt that the police had insufficient capacity to stop the violence. There are 180,000 cops in this country. Obviously, not all of them are operational. And at the time the riots broke out, the Public Order Policing Unit of the SAPS numbered only 5,500, whereas the ideal operational strength required is over 12,700. The riots happened simultaneously in areas that are far from each other and took on a form of anarchy unfamiliar to even South Africa, that being the targeted looting and torching of shopping malls and warehouses. The failure of reliable intelligence points to the urgent need to implement the recommendations of the high-level review panel on the State Security Agency. Now, that's a report commissioned by President Cyril Ramaphosa that found, in a nutshell, that the SSA, the State Security Agency, had been compromised by factionalism, mismanagement and inefficiency. Actually, in the state capture inquiry, we heard how the SSA allegedly became a cash cow for Zuma and how he created a parallel security regime loyal to him and effective in tackling his political enemies. The July riots expert panel finds there was a failure by the intelligence structures to anticipate and respond adequately to the violence. At this point, the report makes a general recommendation to security services. Use all lawful levers available to them, in particular the need to intercept communications in a lawful manner, where the security of the state is at stake. The State Security Agency says it provided all the necessary threat assessments and intelligence before, during and after the crisis. The SSA says months prior to the Constitutional Court ruling sentencing Zuma to prison, 
It had reports, mobilization by groups in support of the former president, with, quote, possible imminent violence that could arise, close quote. But as I've mentioned before, this is simply their version. It's not necessarily backed by any documentation placed in the public domain. To add further confusion to this whole situation, on 8 July 2021, the day before the riots began, the Office of the Coordinator for Intelligence received a document from State Security categorically stating, quote, that no information had been identified suggesting that supporters of former President Zuma would gather and protest in a specific area in the province after the former president handed himself over to authorities in compliance with the warrant of his arrest as issued by the Constitutional Court on 29 June 2021, close quote. The panel doesn't know who authored or sent this report, but it came out right on the eve of the violence. It's fair to say it was hogwash. The report makes the finding that, quote, the minister and the national commissioner are poles apart in their interpretation of how the events of July could have been managed, close quote. Unbelievably, there was rank being thrown around on the ground between the SAPS and the South African National Defence Force, which was ultimately then deployed on the 12th of July. The report finds that SAPS initially excluded the SANDF from intelligence briefings. A colonel in the military was excluded from briefings due to his lower rank in comparison to his police counterparts. Quote, as a result, the SANDF was not clear as to where to deploy members. Close quote. Finally, the report finds that there has been a lack of adequate technological innovation and undercapacitation of the security services that ultimately hampered their efficient operations. Quote, much of the mobilization took place on cyber platforms and the services had not been agile and aggressive enough in their modernization to keep up with this, close quote. I don't know how you interpret this, but to me, this means police, intelligence and state security agencies had no means by which to counter, infiltrate or shut down the widespread use of WhatsApp groups and Twitter, used very successfully to incite and coordinate violent attacks. These riots are the most costly in our country's history. That's according to SASRIA, the South African Special Risk Insurance Association. Some 14,000 claims were submitted, totaling 30 billion rand in claims divided between KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng on an 80-20 split. Security experts and veterans of the intelligence community testified that it was obvious that the violence had been orchestrated, deliberate and coordinated. These were not the actions of ordinary people. The ringleaders of the violence remain largely faceless. The president told the nation that they have identified 12 instigators who would be charged. But there's been a handful of individuals identified based on their inflammatory social media accounts, and they've been charged with nothing more than incitement to violence, finds the report. The mastermind, or masterminds, would be guilty of terrorist activity, from the methods used to loot and then destroy the logistics network between KZN and Gauteng, the report notes, organized crime was likely involved. In essence, the panel says, cabinet must take overall responsibility for what unfolded. Intelligence structures failed completely to anticipate, prevent or disrupt the planned and orchestrated violence. The police's response failed because it wasn't driven by any intelligence and failed to adapt to the modus operandi on the ground. The soldiers who were deployed didn't know where to be deployed to make an impact, and they were not equipped to handle riot situations, but their show of force did restore calm. The internal differences within the governing party, the ANC, contributed to the unrest and should be addressed as a matter of national security now. Let that sink in. 
as it must for the ANC. Their internal squabbles for power and position are a threat to national security. Thanks for listening. André Grunewald, you are the yeah. ambassador for South Africa in Ukraine. Where are you now? What's going on? We are actually busy moving out of, of, of the country. Um, there are there seems to be some uh, opportunities for you know humanitarian corridors for people to move out, um, and we are a little bit concerned about the, the attack in the city, and you know that it might turn for the worse. Um, and, you know, there's some other factors as well, the economy and, you know, possible looting. But we have not seen that because of the, the curfews at night. Um, but we are, you know, rather safe than sorry. Okay. So we are moving out with a, with a, with a convoy of motors. Oh, so are you, in, are you in a car at the moment? Yeah, I'm oh. driving. Oh, my goodness. Are you driving? I'm driving. Oh, okay, Andre, thank you. So, thank you for speaking to us. Um, what was it like these last past days? Do, are you getting all the South Africans out now? We are trying. Um, we have um, the embassies assisting, and of course, people, um, there are volunteers that are also assisting, um, because the whole thing now is, is people phoning in and, 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 and then trying to get them across the borders. Um, and of course, once they cross the borders, it's trying to you know, funnel them into an area and to at least know where they are, um, you know, that's kind of what the first phase of the process is for now. Because you're trying to keep all the South Africans, once they cross the border, together? Yeah, not necessarily trying to get them together. I mean, we're not keeping people that have their own means, and there's quite a number of people that are moving on to family or friends or, or whatever, and they, or they're flying out, but those that, that do need um, further assistance. So, so and of course, our ambassador, I spoke to her this morning, our ambassador in Poland is, is, is at the border uh, between um, Poland and, and Ukraine. And she's called? Sorry? What, what, is, what is her name? I'll send, you a, I'll send you a detail. Okay, thank you so, so much. And so do you think there are more South Africans still left in Ukraine? No, I think the bulk are, are coming out and have come out. Um, the, the problem that we have is the fact that most of the South Africans um, that we have are people that have registered, um, students, and they've, most of them have, you know, registered even during the COVID, COVID um, difficulties. So we have our, uh, them on the list. But now, all of a sudden, and because of all the, the TV news and, and, and so on, people are coming out of the woodworks and, and, and you know, and saying that they are here. In the past, people would not even register at the embassy because they've been marrying, married to, to, to Ukrainians and they've integrated into the, into the community. And so um, we don't really know about them. So we can't give you a, a specific number, but the people that have been uh, registered at the embassy, I think most of them are, are, are out. Those who are not out are at the borders. The borders are clogged. The, the, the congestion is incredible. And, and, of course, our ambassadors are at the borders or, or consular uh, officials trying to assist them to get through. Yes, we've had reports of, of, of some of the students managing to get to Hungary. So you are heading for Poland. Poland, that's where you, you are no, going. No, no, no. Uh, we are driving safe, uh, south because there seems to be a, 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 a corridor. Um, and, it, you know, just to get out of, of, of Kiev, so we're driving south. And then we will, we will at some stage make a call to see either to go to Romania, Moldova, or even turn to, to Hungary. So, Andre, but we have in the convoy some yeah, different embassies. Oh, so, so that you are all embassy personnel in this convoy? There, there are some other people as well. I'm sitting here with a journalist that's making notes as we are, are speaking. Oh, that's incredible. And, and do you have an idea which, which other countries are evacuating? Um, with us in the group, we have colleagues from, from Hungary and we've got colleagues from um, Nigeria and, and South Africa. 200. And some private people, yeah. So, so do you feel safer now, Andre? I mean, you've been in your bunker for, 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 for a couple of days now after the attack started. Do you feel yeah, a bit safer I now? I actually do. Uh, you know, once you get out, and this is the thing that, you know, that we all experience, when you stay in your house and you see everything on the 
on the media and 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 on you know on even on the personal uh, media, it just scares you. Now that we are out, obviously it's not a safe situation. It, it, you know we're going through checkpoints all the time. Um, it, 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 but you see people walking in the in the streets. Um, you know, so this, I've never seen the streets this empty in my life. Um, but but you still see people in the streets, and so that 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 gives you a little bit of hope. We've, we are outside of the city now, so it's open, um, open field. So, you know, that always gives you that sense. I come from the Karoo, so, you know, I'm happy to see some, some horizon. Yeah, South Africans always want to see a horizon. Andre, can you just quickly take us back? I know you're in a pressurized situation right now. What was it like in Kiev um, these last days? It's scary, um, and... You know, the bombing and the explosions and, and um, the, the thing that I think for all of us is, is probably the most harrowing is the, the sirens um, that goes off. Um, you only hear of those things in movies. So when you hear that, that is, that is scary. And of course, if you hear bombs falling closer to your, where you live and the house shakes, that, that's a scary thing as well. So, so for us, it, and, and, and at night. Of course, there's more explosions at night than in day. So every you know morning when the sun comes up, it's uh, it's an incredible feeling. Yeah, can I, I can can imagine. Have you seen casualties on the streets? No, no, not seen that. Fortunately, we no. are hearing about fights in the streets in, in, in areas where our, our some of our staff are, are living, um, but not. In, in the area where we live, we've not seen that. It's more in the in the central part of the city. Um, and now seeing all of these blockades and so on, it kind of makes you know a little bit of sense as well. Andre, is there any hope that the peace might break out? That there might be a ceasefire? We have no choice. We have to. We have to believe that 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 we will have that. Um, there's just no other way. Um, this is not a, a, a condition that people can live in. Um, the stress um, and everything is, is not something that that you can that you can have. So, so yeah, all hope on that. That cool head will prevail, um, and that we can move um, through this process. Yeah. Is is that the government position as well? You you rather want a negotiations that you're not choosing? Are you you're not choosing sides? I mean, I, you guys have seen what the president said um, and, and the minister. It's all about, you know, dialogue, mediation, um, and our position has always been we wouldn't want the, the, the parties to speak so that we can get to a lasting, uh, a lasting solution. Yeah. Andre, we're not going to keep you because okay. uh, can you see shelling at Thank the you. moment? Can you see shelling at the moment? No, or? no shelling. So we're the- just going through another. Every, I think every about five kilometers, we're going through military. Um, so how far are you from the border? How far do you have to drive? Now, I'm, I'm not sure, but, you know, it's going to be a long time. It depends on which border we're going to, um, and that will be, you know, dependent on the situation that we are seeing. Um, but to the southern border, probably are 400, 500 kilometers to Romania or Moldova. Okay, Andre Grunewald, the ambassador for South Africa in Ukraine. Well, keep safe, please, and thank you so much, even in this pressurized situation, for speaking to us. Thanks, Andre. Andre, bye, donkey. Bye, bye, bye. Well, as we all know, Russia has invaded Ukraine, and we at the southern tip of Africa wondering what effect that has on us. Is it our war? And to help us unpack that is Chris Van Dome. He's a research fellow at the Africa program at the esteemed Chatham House. Um, hi, Chris. Hi, Linda. Good to see you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so before we dive into what it means for South Africa, this seems to be quite dire when you look at it from a European point of view. I, I've read this morning assessments that say this is the end of peace in Europe. Is that reading too much in it? Is it that bad? Is this the end of the era that we had, the peaceful era we had after the Second World War? I think in those terms, what we're seeing in, in that kind of language is referring to really the end of the kind of norms-based international system, where there's a respect for geographically defined boundaries of nation states and and the states that have emerged and participated in you know the United Nations and the European Union, for example, during that time. So when you talk about the kind of the largest 
kind of breach of that system since the Second World War. It's kind of referring to that of, you know, here is a nation state that has been invaded by another nation state uh, against the accepted norms and systems of the, the UN. What does this mean for Africa and specifically for South Africa? Because we are part of BRICS as well. Well, exactly. I think that there's three tiers of impact on South Africa and three kind of tiers of of where South African decision makers have to have to place the emphasis right now. And and the first of those is the immediate response, which is about South African citizens who were directly caught up in what's been going on. The ambassador on the ground there, Andre Grunwald, has been quite active in communicating their response. There are a number of South African students, for example, who were on the ground, uh, particularly in the medical sciences. So there's a number of doctors being trained in Ukraine. And so that's clearly a priority is making sure that the, the security and safety of South Africans that are caught up in this are, you know, that that is prioritised. And beyond that, he's also been talking about the fact that, you know, other African countries don't have diplomatic or consular presence on the ground. And so some of that is being done by the South Africans as well. And they're kind of taking a wider responsibility for other Africans who are caught up in what's been going on. So that's the immediate kind of the first tier. The second tier is then the kind of the midterm, you know, how does it affect South Africa in terms of kind of very practical or economic ways? And and that's where you see kind of high volatility in the markets. So you've seen oil and gas prices go up. Clearly, that's going to have an impact on global energy supplies and global inputs as well. So that's going to have an impact on kind of food prices globally. Uh, you've also got the impact of, you know, when, when these high-risk events occur, the capital tends to migrate back to uh, secure locations and places that are uh, perhaps perceived as high-risk, such as South Africa. You'll see a withdrawal of capital from places like this, which is why you see a slight depreciation of the RAND as well. So there's going to be volatility there. And then food prices going forward because of things like, you know, in the mid to long term, Ukraine is a significant grain producer, for example. So, you know, there's that level of impact as well, which is, you know, the global economic impact of what's going on from which South Africa clearly isn't shielded. And then the top kind of high level geopolitical impact is exactly as you say, it's this question mark of things like BRICS. You know, how does South Africa square its membership of BRICS? with this issue that a a member of that organization or that that cluster has done something like this and how does that relate to say you know the african union's position on non-interventionism i think south africa and other african countries have you know been widely respecting the speech that was given by the kenyans at the un this week kind of forcefully saying we in africa are the product of colonialism and invasion and occupancy and we do not stand for it and so the kenyans were the first to come out and say that and now you've had a statement from south africa perhaps a little bit softer but saying the the same things there's that and and i think that for a number of african countries and south africa included as some of the kind of larger world powers have kind of adjusted for in a kind of changing international system where you know, since the Cold War you've had a period of kind of American uh, hegemony or kind of global multilateralism and you know multiple kind of sources of kind of dominant powers as, as these things are shifting South Africa and other African countries have sought to balance some of these relationships but when something like this happens and it it creates yep. such a divide within you know again within the United Nations and within those kind of systems of, of international governance and it's going to start forcing the hand of places like South Africa to really take a stand on some of these issues and it's going to mean that South African leadership have to take a position and and you can start to see that already with the way in which Cyril Ramaphosa has been talking about you know engaging with the Russians and the uh, and the Americans uh, and as you say and I'm sure as we'll, we'll discuss you know that then raises questions back in South Africa of well, why are we getting involved when we've got so much at stake at home? People on social media, the trend seems to be, this is not our war. 
you know, we should get involved, which is quite interesting. And it's also Durko seems to have escalated their response. It started off quite muted, and now they're urging the Russians to withdraw. But I think they're going for the angle of we always negotiate. We are a country born from negotiations. Let's negotiate. So any role for South Africa in that trying to do that? Yeah, look, you know, that refers to two things. I think number one is that, yes, South Africa had for a long time and it waned under Zuma. But, you know, certainly in the in in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, the process that South Africa went through in kind of forging what happened in the kind of creation of the Constitution, moved to um, democratic participation in 1994, the negotiations around that became part of South Africa's soft power of what it was trying to sell to the world as, you know, we are a nation born around human rights and negotiation. And, and, and that was a key part of, a, of their foreign policy objective. Obviously, debates about uh, whether or not that ever actually really materialized. And certainly under more recent regimes, under Zuma, but also under Ramaphosa, there can be questions around whether or not, you know, does that sit at odds with a more pragmatic kind of nation state self-interest view of foreign policy? There's that side of the kind of wanting to export that soft power angle of what of what South Africa sees its foreign policy as being. And then the other one, of course, is that South Africa does have some traditional ambition on the global stage. Within the United Nations, there has long been this debate around, you know, the the expansion of the the P5, the permanent five members of the United Nations Security Council. There are non-permanent members, of course, of which Kenya is currently one. And South Africa has held that non-permanent position, I think, three times now. You know, there's that kind of ambition as well of, well, okay, this, you know, this isn't just about South Africa having a a position on Ukraine specifically, but it is about, you know, South Africa wanting to represent the continent and continental ambitions on a whole range of global issues. And so when Mm. something like this is the kind of centre of global debate, it feels that it does need to have a position on it, because if it doesn't have a position on an issue like this that is so dominant within those international debates right now and within the UN, then it's difficult to justify having a greater role on other issues. What is Britain's endgame? Is he trying to resurrect the Soviet Union or is he just trying to get NATO out of Ukraine because he thinks it's right on his border? Is there something that would persuade him to end this that is the that's the golden question, and even even reading from uh, yeah various Russia analysts, I don't think that there's a unified opinion of that. I know that we at Chatham House have got a collection of our Russia experts who are going to be doing an event on that specifically at some point this week, and so I'd advise people to go and watch that instead and and hear those views. But I think that whatever his intention is, I think that um, it's not going to be one that South Africa can necessarily influence or or impact. Wayne Duvenage, the uh, head of the organization Undoing Tax Abuse, it's good to chat to you at the Business Conference. You've given a very riveting state capture summary, and I was interested in the last portion Mm. um, where you were asked about private prosecutions. A lot of pressure is being put on the National Prosecuting Authority. Mm. Uh, Andrea Johnson has just come in. Uh, Hermione Cronier is leaving us. Shamila Batoy is under the hammer. Mm. When are we going to see significant politicians and those with political influence in orange overalls? It just isn't happening fast enough. The notion of private prosecutions, it could be a dangerous proposition because everybody can be privately prosecuted. Is that what you were getting at? Yes. Um, The notion and the idea is good, but only if it's in the right hands. Uh, Private prosecutions can then be bought by anyone. And uh, just think about uh, it is going to be the people with money because court cases are very costly. Uh, and think of who has money, and a lot of corrupt people have money, and they will keep innocent people tied up in very expensive lawsuits and court cases if they're allowed to bring private prosecutions. So that's the one uh, area. It has to be granted to you by the NPA, and only on the basis that they don't believe there's a credible case. They can't grant private prosecutions because they're too busy. So they've got to apply their minds, and I think that law is strong, and it's the right way to have it, and we shouldn't try and tamper with that and allow allow private prosecutions to be uh, uh, um, become 
uh, willy-nilly and available for everybody. Well, you, I, I think it was either yourself or it was, <laughs> it was Helen Ziller who made the point that the capacity of the National Prosecuting Authority has been decimated yeah. to the point where certain junior prosecutors mm. are unable to write up indictments. Yeah. And there's so much pressure on them and the dots are there, but joining the dots is the problem. And y- what you spoke about today was if in Kosozana Glumini Zuma, if David Mabuza had sided with NDZ mm. in Nazarek 2017, there may never have been, or not in its current form that yeah. it's unfolding at least, this sort of Zondo commission and, and its findings. Yeah. How, how close did we come to that precipice? Very close, very close. And, you know, if, if Jacob Zuma didn't uh, do the deal with the devil, so to speak, because the last person you do want to rule this country is the, is the uh, Deputy President, David Mabuza. Uh, but I guess this is what politics is all about. There's an agenda there. And, uh, you know, Cyril's probably the best of a bad bunch. Doesn't make him right or the best president uh, that we should have for this country. But just imagine... Uh, if, if in Kosozana Dlamini Zuma was in power with her ex-husband in the background, uh, still pulling the strings, um, no real robust leadership uh, that would have changed uh, this Zondo process, that would have put the NPA into a space, even though it's not working as fast as it should, but it is going in the right direction, uh, we would be would be failed state by now. You know, I remember the Guptas... Uh, handing over a check of several hundred thousand rand to Nkosazana Glumini Zuma. I can't give you the exact year, but they had voted her, and and this was the Gupta Media Enterprise, had voted her the South African of the year. Mm. (laughs) Maybe they knew something we didn't back then, that they were already uh, laying the groundwork for for when Madam NDZ became president. But interestingly, they also named Tulimaran Sela uh, South African of the Year in, in previous years. Mm. So, yes. Well, they had to because they had to be seen to be doing things that, uh, you know, was not one-sided. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the inception of the opposition to Urban Tolling Alliance. Mm. You have reinvented <coughs> yourselves as the organization undoing tax abuse. Are you looking forward to a day when you can close your doors? Because well, essentially, yes. essentially, you exist because of bad governance. Of bad governance. Yeah. Yeah. Are you hoping you can work your way out of a job? Yeah. If I would wish for nothing more that we never had to exist because government is being run properly. So we don't do this because, um, because we uh, wanted to set up a new business. This is not a venture. This is a necessity. And this is an organization filled with passionate people, activists, by the way, specialists, uh, professionals, um, that, uh, that, that, that believe in the same thing. We've got to do this work. I would want to be in the corporate world. I would want to. There's no, there's no um, shareholding for me in a nonprofit company. Uh, there's no wealth building here. This is about um, doing work that has to be done and to build a team who feel the same way. So, yeah, the, you know, if we didn't exist, I'd be happy for the right reasons. The 2024 general election, mm. it's Helen Ziller's belief that the ANC will drop below 50%, and then it is a question of who they decide to partner with. Yeah. Whether, and she's under the impression that the decision will be between an EFF left-leaning mm-hmm. uh, coalition partner and the, the Democratic um, or the, the Democratic Alliance on the right, so to mm-hmm. speak, center right. Um, are you looking forward to 2024 and all the shenanigans that could bring? Because the ANC is still going to be the majority partner in this country. Helen Zilla says their predictions are they drop below 50%. What do you see playing out in 2024? Yeah, I, I think they will drop below 20, uh, 50%. Um, and here's the nub, though. If we can get more people to the voting poll, um, they will drop even further. And that's where she talks about 45% and maybe even less. Uh, what you saw in the last local elections was that all, uh, of all the people that were could have voted, in other words, if, if people just registered as well, less than 40%, uh, around about 40%, I think 43% of people voted that could have voted 
if they'd have gone and registered, and, and I think it's a bit higher, only 60% uh, of registered voters voted. I mean, that's a sad situation. And, and what's also interesting about that is that you'd expect that, well, as the voter turnout dropped because of this less choice, the EFF's portion would have grown because as populists and their party base is going to, they're going to try and get them out to vote, and they never grew. So they also lost supporters. So, uh, so I think what we're seeing is quite exciting, especially in look at Joburg, <coughs> look at Ikarulini, look what nearly happened in Etiquini, where um, <laughs> the DA rules and they and the ANC has 45% uh, or more. They've got the largest, uh, 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 they are the majority in those, but not over 50%. So how is it that the DA is running cities where the ANC has a higher uh, election result? And it's because of these coalitions. Very interesting space. And you could find that a 45% ANC in the next elections with a DA leader. Think about it. That's what's happening in, 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 in some of these big cities. Because they get enough support from, 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 from all the other parties. And it really is going to be interesting. What we need to do is get as much people to vote and to start seeing uh, what their options are. This notion that, well, nothing really appeals to me, so I shouldn't vote, oh, I'm not going to vote, is the sad one. What you need to start doing, uh, the public, is voting strategically. And I think Arta is going to play, although we, we've got to stay out of politics, but we've got to change this country at the same time, is to get people to realise that, you know, we fought hard for this democracy. To not vote is a sin. It's wrong, and even if the choices aren't there, vote strategically. Vote for the least bad option. Mm. That's it. And whether it's one of the smaller parties or not, just vote, because if everybody voted, then you get the true picture of what we want. And, and, and I think what we can, we can hear when uh, Helen Zillow was saying this morning is that um, I think more and more people are starting to realise uh, that we've got to fix this country because we've got too much to lose. Speaking of bad options or the least bad option, I want to, to end off this interview with what on earth is going on with e-tolls you had for Kilo and Balula. If, if I had a rand for every time that they said they were going to make an announcement, a mm. final announcement or pronouncement about e-tolls, we could have paid off e-tolling by now mm. and paid off all the costs of the infrastructure. Do we have a definitive answer on what's going on? Look, they've come to the realisation now, um, or some time ago, that they can't do anything about enforcement. They know that. Um, and it would, be, it would be suicide to do so. So if you can't enforce a policy and your, and your buy-in rate or your compliance rate is, is on a user pay scheme is sitting at 15%, 85% of people not paying, then um, it's a lost cause policy. It's a lost cause uh, 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 system that, that, that they've got or scheme. And we just cannot understand why they haven't made the decision. Now, the decision is not just to say, oh, we, we're going to stop e-tolling. You have to undo and go back and change the law which declared the Gauteng Freeway roads as tolled roads. You need to undo that. So you've got, And that's not difficult to do. Something just keeps telling me in the back of my head, well, obviously the 50 to 60 million rand that is coming through still instead of the 300 million that they're wanting means something to somebody. So are you saying that something keeps nagging, tugging yeah. at you to say the ANC, somebody is somehow making money out of this? In the decision-making space, uh, smell the rat. It smells, it stinks. We have asked questions in the past. We've picked up contracts that were signed before the scheme started, 10 million rand uh, went into into spaces which they can't explain. Uh, they haven't come back. Uh, Sanral don't want to explain what these monies were paid for. So what better way to get money out of the country than to do it through the ETOL scheme? David Bacher, Chief Investment Officer of Corian Capital. David, we're missing you at the conference. I've got no doubt we'll be seeing you here in September However, someone has to keep the economy going. That would be the team at Corian Capital, who besides manage an array of funds, publish an informative summary of asset class and fund performance returns each month suitable for any level of investors. 
strategists such as Magnus Haystick have described the Korean Capital Report as prescribed reading, and that report can be found on Korean Capital's website or biznews.com. David, what was the average South African investor's performance like in February? Thanks, Justin. Uh, well, you know, despite the geopolitical developments over the, the past month, that really meant that uh, there was uh, risk assets were under pressure. Um, we believe at, at Corian that most South African savers should be smiling when they read the evaluation statements this month. And this is primarily due to South African equities having another really positive month and uh, significantly outperforming its peers. Um, it's pleasing to note that in dollar terms, South African equities outperformed global equities by around 7%. And if you look at the last three months, that level of outperformance versus world equity markets is, is over 20%. So South African investors should be happy. It was uh, a good month, uh, despite everything that's happening on, on the political side. David, just unpack that a bit further. What are the reasons or the explanation for this level of recent outperformance versus our global counterparts? Good question. Um, you know, at Korean, we believe that the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, actually provides a more sustainable backdrop to to some of our key exports. Uh, South Africa, you know, our big exporters of platinum, palladium, gold, coal, and these commodities are reaching new highs, um, and that provides a very uh, favourable fiscal uh, situation. Um, and, and probably it's going to be better for longer. And that certainly provides some underpin, not only for domestic equities, but for, potentially for local bonds and the RAND. So, you know, on a relative basis, you know, South Africa doesn't look like such a terrible place when, when one scans the rest of the map of the world. And, and in addition to that, you know, I think we entered this, uh, crisis, uh, so to speak, uh, with significantly more favorable valuations. At Corian, you know, we do have a focus on valuations over the long term. So, you know, uh, buying assets at, at cheaper prices uh, certainly uh, helps South African investors. The dogs of the market yet again, NASPIS and process. How big are these shares in the context of the South African equity market at the moment? Justin, it's very material. If you, if you combine the two shares, the weighting in the all share index is around 10%. Um, when Corian looked at the holdings of the general equity funds, I mean, our, our analysis showed that roughly 75% of funds had exposure of 3% or more, and about 40% had an overweight position. So in other words, more than 10%. So bottom line, it's material. It's a material weighting. Um, it probably contributed to a detraction about 2% to the all share index last month, which really goes to show how well resources did to actually get the all share index to a positive February return of, of about 3%. David, you mentioned the geopolitical risks. Do any South African funds have any big exposure towards Russia and Ukraine? I don't think there, there's anything, uh, you know, that, that surprised us, uh, if you look at the Russian exposure to the, the emerging market index, it is only around 2%. So in terms of a, like the global equity markets or country world index, it is a neg negligible exposure. So you know, at the end of last year, um, there were about 15 funds that had exposure to Russia of, of more than 3%. Um, and even those funds, the majority of those 15 funds were, were funds that were aggressive of nature, had a mandate to invest in frontier markets, emerging markets. So, um, you know, you shouldn't be too surprised that they had exposure to, to the Russian equity uh, markets. Um, but, you know, in the greater scheme of things, it's not a material um, exposure that investors uh, will, will feel the brunt of. Which funds particularly stood out for you performance-wise in the month of February? So obviously, you, given what I, I said previously, there were two things that you had to get right last month. You had to be overweight resources, precious metals, and underweight NASPAS. Um, so generally, the funds that did really, really well last month were the high-dividend focus funds, uh, the quality funds, 
um, which, you know, due to the, the high nature of resource dividend paying com- companies, I mean, you, we saw last month Amplat having a, a special dividend of about 80 billion rand. Those funds that are focusing on resource shares, paying those dividends, uh, did, did really well. We like to look into the future. Looking forward, where are you investing your money at this point? So I think things haven't really changed there, Justin. Um, you know, it is a volatile environment. Uh, and at Corin, we, we think you have an advantage to being nimble. So from every given week, you've got to see what lies in front of you. Um, but looking long term, uh, we still think that uh, in the context of risk and return, South African bonds are, are attractive. They are providing you with a real return of about 4%. Um, and in the context of, of, of a low-yielding world, you know, 4% is something that we think uh, investors should be pleased about. Today is Friday, March 4th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Russian forces continued to lay waste to Ukrainian cities yesterday, and the U.S. announced new sanctions on oligarchs. Meanwhile, prices of global commodities like wheat and corn skyrocketed on supply fears, and big Western brands continued their mass exodus from Russia. It is as sudden as the entry into the market we saw more than 30 years ago. And I think it raises one more very interesting question. Which brands will take their place? I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Russian missiles rained down on the Ukrainian port of Mariupol and the cities of Chernev and Kharkiv on Thursday. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin said in a video address that he would never give up his conviction that Russians and Ukrainians are one people. As Putin vowed to press on with his war, U.S. President Joe Biden announced more sanctions on several Russian oligarchs and government officials. Here's the FT's U.S. political correspondent Lauren Fedor with more on that. This list of individuals who are facing these fresh sanctions runs more than 50 people. I'm not going to run you through every single one of them. But some of the biggest names include the Russian billionaire Alisher Uzmanov. Um, It also includes Dmitry Peskov, who's the Kremlin spokesman. Interestingly, these sanctions for a lot of these individuals uh, are pertaining not just to them, but to their families as well. So we see uh, as you go down the list, you'll see individuals who it's not just themselves, but their spouses, their children. And and the White House really wanted to put the squeeze on Putin and put the squeeze on people close to Putin. So can we expect more sanctions from Biden? It's definitely fair to say that there could be still more to come. In fact, the White House said yesterday uh, that this could just be the first set of sanctions against individual oligarchs. You know, it's also important to remember that we're just talking about the U.S., which is obviously significant and important. But the U.S. made these announcements in conjunction and shortly after similar sanctions were announced by the EU, by the U.K. government. Uh, So there's really a global coordinated effort here to crack down on a lot of these individuals. Lauren Fedor is the FT's U.S. political correspondent. Yesterday, three of the biggest global professional service groups announced their exit or suspension of business in Russia. They're the latest Western companies to flee the country in the wake of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. The FT's Andrew Edgecliff Johnson is following this and has the details. What's happening this week is a very rapidly snowballing exit from Russia by major multinationals. We've seen this with companies as big as Exxon, BP and Shell. We've seen it through big brands like Apple and Google and Facebook, you know, curtailing their services in the country. But now you have companies that actually employ a lot of people in Russia. Accenture employed 2,300 people in Russia. It is firing every one of those people now and closing down its entire Russia operation. McKinsey and BCG are not going that far. They're suspending operations. They're saying, we're not going to take on new work in Russia. So I think what we're seeing is a real escalation now of anxiety among Western multinationals about the ability to do business in Russia right now. Edge, how much of this is just, you know, companies looking for good PR? I think I would frame it more as reputational risk, um, even that PR element. I think at the same time, there is a real consideration about can you practically do business in Russia anymore if the banking system is completely frozen, 
if you can't get your accounts there audited, if you may not be able to get any profits you're making in Russia out of the country, and if the ruble is devalued and interest rates have been whacked up to 20%. So I think it's a real mix of these practical considerations, a reading on the grim outlook for the Russian economy, which was you know, seen as a potential growth market just a month or two ago, and a reputational consideration that goes beyond the usual PR fluff. So this is obviously meant to show that these companies disagree with Russia's war in Ukraine and, you know, maybe even punish Russia. But, you know, are they actually hurting Russia or are they just hurting everyday Russians? This is a concern for a lot of companies that if they get this response wrong, they're not going to be harming Vladimir Putin. They're going to be harming the average Russian consumer. And I think a lot of companies have hesitated about what to do for that very reason. It depends an awful lot on the business you're in. If you are in the grain trading business or the oil business, it's a very different equation from if you're selling food and drink, for example, to the Russian people. And we're going to talk about the grain business in just a minute. But first, Edge, is this the end of an era? You know, what do you make of all these Western companies pulling back from Russia? I think we all remember what a moment it was when that first McDonald's opened in Moscow in 1990, or when Russians could finally buy Levi Strauss jeans on something other than the black market. This was seen in the West as a triumph of Western corporate capitalism. And it was very much encouraged by Western democracies. So the US State Department encouraged some of these moves into the Russian market by Western brands, for example. But I think the exit we're seeing now, while it doesn't yet affect all of those brands, is as significant, it is as sudden as the entry into the market we saw more than 30 years ago. And I think it raises one more very interesting question, which is if US brands are not available, then which brands will take their place? And my colleagues in Moscow have spoken to several people there who say, well, if we can't buy an iPhone, we're going to buy a Xiaomi phone from China instead. So I think this may create a very unexpected opportunity for Chinese brands to take the place of U.S. brands instead. Russia's war on Ukraine is fueling a record increase in global commodity prices. It's affecting everything from oil to aluminum to coal. Gas prices are at a new record high. And wheat is jumping too. To explain what's going on with food supplies, I'm joined by our commodities correspondent, Emiko Terrazono. Hi, Emiko. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well. So... How bad are the supply problems relating to wheat and other grains because of the war in Ukraine? So, Mark, this is pretty serious. All the ports um, where grain is loaded from Ukraine are closed. And Russia also has its main grain ports in the Black Sea, which is essentially closed as well because um, there are no vessels that are going in and out. So grain flows from both Russia and Ukraine are virtually halted. So which importer countries are being affected the worst? So both Ukraine and Russia send a lot of their grains to the Middle East, to North Africa, and especially South Asia. And a lot of these countries are already struggling with food insecurity. Some of them have stocks, inventories like Egypt, but you know uh, countries like Lebanon, Libya, Syria... They all rely on wheat from Ukraine, and they are going to struggle. So, Emiko, if commodities from Russia and Ukraine continue to be blocked because of the war, uh, what are the alternative sources of supply? So, EU is a big um, supply source, as is the US, Brazil, and China for wheat. Argentina is uh, an exporter as well. But the problem has been that um, last year, a lot of these countries have been hit by drought. Um, Australia is supposedly having a fantastic harvest. But my colleagues there tell me that a lot of the supplies are uh, now contracted out. So, there's very little spare that's going to be able to go around. So, Emika, what are the political implications for countries that depend on these imports from Ukraine and Russia? I think political instability is the greatest fear. When you have a um, shortage of food, it tends to act as a trigger for things like riots and unrest. 
07 and 08, the food crisis and food shortages led to widespread riots and protests in more than 40 countries around the world. And in 09-10, you had the Arab Spring. Now, it wasn't all down to food prices, but it's just another thing that could lead to instability. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.